0: So can you turn, please, to Acts chapter 19? Acts chapter 19. Before we sort of launch into the the book of Ephesians and see what is it that... That Paul is telling us there, let's see how this church began, let's see what this city was like, let's see what happened whenever Paul showed up, and more specifically, whenever the Holy Spirit showed up. So I'm going to start in uh, chapter 19, and I'm going to read probably about 20 verses, slightly longer reading maybe than usual, but if you have a Bible, go along with it, please, Uh, some other verses will appear on the screen, hopefully, if everything works. As we go along, Acts chapter 19, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. This is his second trip to Ephesus. At the end of chapter 18, he's in Ephesus for the first time. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believed, they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, the same message Jesus brought. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Amazing. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen. I haven't read about it happening. I've seen it happen. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. At the start of chapter 19, whenever Paul arrives at Ephesus, he meets these roughly 12 men. And his first question to them, Paul doesn't do small talk. (laughs) He cuts straight to the chase with them and he says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now some older versions of the Bible unfortunately translate that incorrectly as Have you received the Holy Spirit? since you believed, implying that it is a later experience, that it does not happen whenever we believe. Paul says, when you believed, did you receive the Spirit? This is a priority for him. These guys have been followers of John the Baptist, and they were baptized for repentance, which is what John the Baptist taught. But for some reason they have not been correctly instructed or they are not quite up to speed with where things are at this very unique time in history. And they don't realize that the Holy Spirit has come and is available to them. And Paul corrects them. He doesn't rubbish them. He doesn't pan what they believe or what their experience so far is He corrects them and leads them into a fuller experience of following Jesus. Two things about Paul's conversation with them. From Paul's side of it, I wonder, are you and am I courageous enough with people and also loving and gentle enough with them to be able to say to them, listen, there's more. Not to wreck them or destroy them but to say you maybe need a fuller understanding of what the Christian life is about. You maybe have only been told part of the Christian life and there's more. Do we have the courage and the the relationship and the love for people to be able to do that? And from the point of view of the 12 guys who were listening to Paul, are we receptive whenever we are on the receiving end of that? Someone sits me down and says, David, here's, here's something you've missed Here's a, here's a better way or here's something you should think about. Do we default to defending ourselves and our own opinions or do we listen and take it on board? This is a great conversation between these, Paul and these 12 men. It's very brief, but Paul is challenging them about their experience and he basically says to them, you guys have just learned something new that you did not know. It's not your fault that you didn't know it. You have been not fully instructed, but now you know it. Do you want it? (laughs) Will you embrace it? Will you receive it? And Paul baptizes them and prays for them. And the Spirit comes upon them powerfully when that happens. And on this occasion, that is evidenced by tongues and prophecy. And I don't think that this passage, because this is Acts and this is a very unique time in the history of the church, I don't think this means that you must have a one-off second experience after conversion. I don't believe that. That's maybe something for another Sunday night. I don't believe in a second blessing. I believe in a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, ongoing filling with the Holy Ghost. I don't believe that God holds back from us something that we need to live the Christian life whenever we are Christians. I don't believe this passage teaches that there's a delay between starting to follow Jesus and then receiving power to live. I believe what the passage teaches is you can't be a Christian without the Holy Ghost. You cannot be a follower of Jesus without the Spirit. And no matter when that happens whether it's at the moment of being born again or whether it's sometime later, as was the experience of these guys, because they hadn't been fully instructed, it doesn't really matter about the timing. What matters is you need the Holy Spirit. And Paul is really agitated about this. He goes straight after it with these guys. Do you, did you receive the Spirit? He wants them to have a full experience of Christ and fully empowered to live the life That Jesus calls us to. This is non-negotiable. Paul also says in Romans 8. He says that that basically those that belong to Christ have the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. This is non-negotiable. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the point that I want to make today. Is that the Holy Spirit in Ephesus. and We're going to be spending a lot of time in Ephesus. The Holy Spirit, when he showed up in Ephesus, he brought transformation. Transformation. Change. Radical life change that you and I cannot do on our own. We just can't. And I'm sure I'm speaking for myself and many of you when I talk about the experience of trying really hard to be good, you know? Trying really hard to please God and being frustrated and failing and struggling. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is an empowered life of being transformed. What is a Christian? Some might say a Christian is someone whose sins have been forgiven. But you could have your sins forgiven in the Old Testament. David said, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are not counted against him. So a New Testament Christian, yes, has their sins forgiven. But is that the defining feature? I don't believe it is. You might say that a Christian is someone who is going to heaven. Well, yeah, a Christian is going to eternally be with the Lord. But is that the single defining feature of a Christian? I've been at too many funerals lately. Just three in two weeks. And funerals are are strange experiences for me. There's something, as, as, as much as they are sad and there's a lot of grief, there's also tremendous sense of a realization of the brevity of life. And you come away thinking, I don't know how long I have left, but I want to live well. But at one funeral, there was a tremendous, almost exclusive emphasis on going to heaven. As if the only thing Jesus came to achieve was to get you to heaven. And that the whole focus of everything is, where will you go when you die? That's important. But more important, how are you going to live between now and then? How are you going to live this life that God calls you to? So our sins are forgiven and we will be forever with the Lord. But right now, what is different about us than the saints in the Old Testament? What do we have that people did not have before Jesus? And in order to understand that, we need to go to the Old Testament and look at a few passages to see what were these people looking forward to? What was the thing that was out in the future that they didn't have? That they longed for. In Isaiah chapter 44. and verse 3. Just listen to the, the repeated theme in these few verses that I'm going to read. You don't need to look them up. They're, they're here. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Is that your life? Thirsty land. Dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. From Joel chapter 2, quoted in Acts, God says, afterward or in the last days or in the latter time, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters. That's what we bleed in from the previously planned message. (laughs) Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And one of my favorites, a a, a passage that just comes up again and again and again, and I make no apology for it. I think this is a powerful, powerful passage in Ezekiel chapter 36. God says to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you. We're going to come back to this later. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. Does that describe you? And I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. A new heart. That sounds good. That sounds good. You can have it now. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful and wicked. That's bad. God says through Ezekiel, I'll take that heart out and I'll give you a new heart. Does anybody want to have a heart of stone removed A heart of stone in the Old Testament, what that means is a heart that has been affected by worshipping idols. Idols are made of stone. And here's a good theme for life. Whatever you worship, you will become like that thing. That's another message. But if you worship idols, your heart will become like those idols. And God says, you've got a heart of stone. I will remove it and I'll give you a heart of flesh. Warm, soft, alive, rather than cold, hard, and dead. I'll take a new heart. I believe God's given me a new heart. And every believer, he has given them a new heart. Changed their desires. Not only a new heart, but he says, I'll give you a new spirit, my spirit, he says. I'll put my spirit within you. That did not happen very often in the Old Testament. Some judges, some prophets, some kings, occasional people. But it was not the experience of everyone. But they looked forward to a time when it would be the experience of everyone. And I love what what God says here. I will put my spirit in you and move you. And I looked up that word and... The word means, I will work on you. I will fashion you. In fact, it's the same word as another we favorite Old Testament verse in Exodus 31. The first person in your Bible that is described as being filled with the Spirit is a craftsman, an architect, a designer. Not a preacher, not a singer, not a prophet, a craftsman, an artist. Those of you that make stuff, be encouraged. That's God coming out in you. This guy Bezalel in Exodus 31, God says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs. Art is of God and art is not limited to Colors and paper. Creativity is of God. And when God says, I will put my spirit in you and I will move you, it's that same word, make. I'm going to fashion you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to work on you. I'm going to transform you. Would you please relieve yourself of the pressure to change yourself? You can't do it. He can do it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. I will transform you. There's a lovely song I was singing here this morning, early, out of tune, on my own. I give it all to you, God. Trusting that you'll make something beautiful out of me. Not I'm going to try, God, really hard to make myself more beautiful for you. Not physically beautiful, obviously but I'll make myself better for you. No, I'll give, I'll give it all to you, trusting that you'll make something beautiful out of me because that's what God actually does. In Acts 19, Paul is agitated. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why are there so many people sitting in so many churches but not leading transformed lives? Maybe they have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit like these guys. Maybe they don't know and maybe they need apostles like Paul to go and tell them. So many people in society, even outside of the church, they know themselves that they've got hearts of stone. Even those who aren't Christians, they they know there's something wrong with their hearts. They know that, they're aware of it and they'd love to change it, but they can't, they've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And they need apostles to go and tell them. So the Old Testament people of God were looking forward to a time when the Spirit would be poured out and people would be transformed and changed. That's why Paul is agitated here. Moving then from the Old Testament to to Jesus. Jesus had it. The Old Testament looked forward to it and Jesus had it. I hate using the word it, but you know what I mean. In Luke 3, Whenever he is baptized, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, descends on him bodily like a dove and rests on him. And then when he goes into the wilderness, Luke says that he is full of the Spirit. He goes into the wilderness and he does battle with Satan for 40 days. And that is where Satan was bound in the wilderness. Do not underestimate the importance of those 40 days. Jesus bound Satan during that time. And then Jesus went and started setting people free all over the place. Once he had bound Satan. (sighs) He was full of the Spirit. And when he came out of the wilderness, it says that he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This that they had been longing for was now happening in this one human being, this God-man, Jesus. All Israel, the way I look at it, all Israel funneled into him. And then the people of God funneled back out of him. But at this moment, the Holy Spirit is on him and he is living in the power of the Spirit. And the first words that he says as an adult in Luke's gospel are, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me, and what I'm going to do is bring transformation. There is no Christian experience without transformation. You don't encounter Jesus and walk away the same as you can. you don't look at what he says will happen when the spirit is the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is on him and has anointed him. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. That's transformation because poor people didn't receive good news. It was only the elite of society that were allowed to to engage in the religion of the day. And Jesus said, I'm going to go to the poor and I'm going to bring them good news. Transformation. Freedom for prisoners. That's transformation. Sight for the blind and freedom for the oppressed. That's transformation. Jesus is saying, the Spirit's on me and I am going to start effecting the work of transformation in people's lives. And he talks to a guy called Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Very famous conversation. And he says to Nicodemus, just like Paul, straight to the point. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. This might be important. (laughs) What he's about to say after that might just be important. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Have you heard that before anywhere? Born of water and the Spirit. Because without doubt, Jesus is quoting Ezekiel 36 that we saw earlier, where God promised to sprinkle clean water on people and to put his Spirit in them. And one of the reasons that Paul is so agitated when he meets these Ephesian disciples in Acts 19 is that he wants them to enter the kingdom of heaven. And without the Spirit and being born of the Spirit, that's not going to happen. The man has an urgency about him when he arrives in Ephesus. And that urgency then permeates into the letter that we know as Ephesians. Not only did Jesus have the Spirit, Jesus also gave the Spirit he says something a bit cryptic in John fourteen. He says to the disciples, I'm going away. It's good for you that I'm going away. You're like, no, <laughs> it's not, actually, Jesus, it's not good. It would be better if you were here. He says, No, it's good for me that I that for you that I'm going away. And he says to them, You're going to do greater things than me. Right. We're going to do greater things than you, and you're going away. Doesn't add up, Jesus. But then he goes on for the next couple of chapters to teach them about one who would come when he goes away. One called the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He goes in order to send. And on resurrection night, he sits or he stands in the upper room with the disciples and he breathes on them and says, Receive the Spirit. And your mind goes back thousands of years to when God breathed into a human being in the garden and gave him life. And Jesus is basically saying, game on. The fall has deformed what God formed. And now I've come to transform it again. I've come to put the life of God back into human beings and transform them. Game on. We are back on schedule once again. John speaks in his gospel about how Jesus will be the one who will baptize people in the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, he only goes and does it. He pours out the Holy Spirit on the church in Acts chapter 2. Referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Drenches, immerses, floods the church with his Holy Spirit And everyone now who comes and becomes part of the people of God accesses and becomes part of that. Jesus gives the Spirit. And whenever Paul meets some Ephesian believers, Ephesian disciples, he is concerned because he wants them to do what Jesus called him and the other apostles to do in Acts. You're to go into the streets of Jerusalem. You're to go to Judea and you're to go to Samaria and you're to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and you're to go to Tandragi, and you're to go to Armagh and you're to go to Northern Ireland and you're to go to Portugal and you're to go to Europe. And Paul's concerned about these Ephesians and he says to them, did you receive the Spirit? Because you ain't going nowhere if you haven't received the Spirit. And the gospel will not be taken anywhere if you haven't received the Spirit. This is not Something that is optional for people in churches that label themselves a certain way. This is for all people of God. And Paul himself in Acts 9 received the Spirit when Ananias prayed for him. It becomes the identity marker in the early church. After Peter preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 10, it's quite funny because the Holy Spirit has the audacity to interrupt Peter's sermon. And he's going for it. I'd love this to happen, and so would you. He's going for it with this group of people at Cornelius' house. And the Holy Spirit falls before Peter's even finished. And Peter then makes the argument, and I want you to see the way Peter argues. He doesn't say these people's sins have been forgiven just like ours were, which they have. He doesn't say these people are going to heaven just like we are, which they will. He says, they have received the Spirit just as we have. That's the marker. That's Peter's argument. We're going to baptize these people. They're Gentiles. I know they're Gentiles, and I know this is different from what we've done so far. But look what has happened. They have received the Spirit just like we did. That's it. They're in. And he baptizes them. It's powerful. And Paul as well adopts this language. Whenever Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 3, again, look at the language he uses for conversion. It's just naturally in the man. He can't help himself. He's he's arguing with them because they're being a bit silly in Galatians. He's, He's quite firm with the Galatians. And he says in three two, I would like to learn one thing from you. He doesn't say, did you pray the sinner's prayer? He doesn't say, did you have your sins forgiven? He doesn't say, did you get your ticket to heaven? When he was referring to the moment of conversion, he said, did you receive the Spirit? All those other things are true. Don't mishear me. But Paul identifies the Christian life as being the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And his whole goal from then on. And my goal and our goal and the goal for other people who are not here, who are out in the world, but God has called us to reach them. The goal is not just to get them to heaven. It's not just to get them to pray a prayer so we can add another name to a roll book somewhere. The goal, Paul says, the thing that he said in Galatians 4 that he's laboring for is he says, I want to see Christ formed In you. I want to see transformation. I want to see transformation. I want to see lives changed. That happens by the power of the Spirit. Galatians 5 is all about that. That's why when Paul meets Ephesian believers, he's concerned that they've received the Spirit because he wants them to be transformed like Jesus And then Paul, and I I won't dwell too long on the rest of the passage of Acts 19, Paul goes into, into Ephesus and there's just transformation all over the place. It's almost as if God can't help himself. You bring something to him, he changes it. If you want changed, come to Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. If you want to play it safe, and continue with your heart of stone, and continue living in a dry and thirsty land, you go for it. But don't confuse people by telling them you're a Christian. Because according to my New Testament, you're not. You're not. Whenever Paul goes into Ephesus, he first of all goes to the synagogue, and he splits the synagogue. Church splits are bad. In one conversation yesterday, I heard about two of them. Reasonably locally. Church splits are bad. Synagogue splits are just fine. That's just fine. He preaches and teaches in the synagogue for three months. They throw him out, but a whole lot of people go with him. Because they've been transformed. You see, when God shows up in Ephesus, religious people get transformed. And a little bit further on, there are people who are pagans, who engage in witchcraft and sorcery, And whenever they encounter Paul and they encounter the Holy Spirit, they bring all their books teaching them how to do witchcraft and they have a great big old bonfire. Whenever God shows up, pagans are transformed. And later on, those who make idols are in great difficulty because demand for idols is going down. (laughs) In Ephesus, there was a temple to the goddess Artemis. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. She's also called, in different languages called Diana. And she's very loosely in the background in the Wonder Woman character. This goddess Artemis of the Ephesians. And they would have made lots of little statues of Artemis. You can, you can do an image search for Artemis if you want. Not attractive at all. But you look it up. I was going to put a picture up and I thought, no, you a laugh for too long. People would have had these little statues of Artemis and worshipped her. But the the tradesmen all get together in Acts 19 and they're really worried because demand is going down. People don't want to buy the idols anymore because whenever God shows up in Ephesus, idol worshippers get transformed. You see, the Holy Spirit does not play well with others. He does not allow you to mix something in your life with him. I remember the first time I heard Phil Emerson preach. He had hair. I had more hair. And it was maybe 16 or 18 years ago. But a the, the quote that he said that night has never left me. Never left me. He was talking about Joshua 5, which some of you have read recently. And in Joshua 5, Joshua encounters a man standing with a drawn sword. And Joshua says to him, are you on our side or are you on the enemy's side? And the man with the drawn sword says to him, neither. I am the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua realizes who he's dealing with. And when Phil commented on that, he said, whenever this guy, this commander of the Lord's army, who was the Lord, spoke to Joshua, he effectively said, I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over. He doesn't allow space for that little idol to remain. He doesn't allow space on your bookshelf for that pagan book to remain. He doesn't allow space in your heart for religion to remain. He comes to take over. He comes to take over completely. Transformation is a big deal for Paul. He says in 2 Corinthians 5 that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Just think about Jesus breathing. Think about God breathing into that first human. Think about Jesus now breathing into the disciples and into us. New creation. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, he lists a lot of ugly stuff in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But transformation has happened. You were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did it all happen? By the Spirit of our God. And the famous one in Romans 12. Don't be conformed, be transformed. There's an awful damage done by lives in religious communities that are not transformed. Paul warned in his last letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Timothy was the leader in Ephesus. Timothy was the, the pastor, effectively, of the, of the Ephesian church. And he warns Timothy and he says, Time will come when people will have a form of godliness but deny its power. Let me put that into maybe more understandable language. People will look the part But there will be no evidence that the Spirit of God has transformed them. He says, be careful. That's what's going to happen. I believe the power of the Holy Spirit is the power to transform a life. Are you being transformed? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Do you think you've made it? I have not made it. You ever go walking in the morns and you're you're going up something big and you think mm, there's the top and you get to that point. It's like, no, that's not the top. There's more. And then you go up a wee bit further and you think, oh, there's a the top there and you go up and you get there and you no, there's more, and it's just the thing grows as you're walking up it. That's what that's what the transformation is like. Don't ever stop climbing. Don't ever stop at a level and say, This is far enough. Because do you know what's at the top? Jesus is at the top. Once you get to the top, it's over. <laughs> the lights go out. And then the glorious lights come on and you're with Jesus. But the whole journey of life is a life of transformation. No matter what age you are, you should be being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians is all about transformation. What happened when Paul hit Ephesus with the Holy Spirit and the gospel was transformation. And what happens when he writes his letter to the Ephesians is he calls them to a transformed life. He says, put off your old self and put on the new self created to be like God. The transformation that I'm talking about is not simply that you don't do things. Do not understand the Christian life to be a life of don'ts. Christians don't do this, Christians don't do that, Christians don't do this. If that's all the Christian life is, then this music stand can be a Christian because it doesn't do any of those wrong things. The Christian life is not about don'ts. It's about the character of Christ being transformed and formed in you. A work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Christianity is about Don't let anyone tell you anything different. It is not a whole pile of rules. It is, I give it all to you, God, trusting that you'll make something beautiful out of me because I can't do it. I cannot do it. Are you trying to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are you trying as a non-Christian to get better and deal with that heart of stone and that dry ground? Both those categories, you're destined for failure. I'll save you wasting your time. Do you need transformed? Do you need to get rid of that heart of stone? Do you need God's Spirit to come into you and move you, fashion you, work on you, and transform you. I do. I do. Yeah. If you want to pray afterwards, you come and pray. You can come up here and pray as we sing, or you can pull somebody aside afterwards and say, boy, I need transformed. Can you pray for me somewhere private so nobody sees me? If that's what you want. But I I give it to you. It's the only Christian life I know. It's the only Christian life I read of in the New Testament. There is no other. There is no other. Let's pray.